Well, hello, everybody. Good morning. Great to be with you today. Thanks for coming on a Saturday. I appreciate uh, people that give up their Saturday for uh, a teaching like this. So anyways, thank you very much. It's great to be here. I'm Scott Allen, and uh, I, um, I'm coming to you from Phoenix, where it was 100-plus degrees yesterday. It's nice to be in cooler temperatures here in Pennsylvania. I haven't been here for a long time, so it's great to be back. Um, just a little bit about me before we jump into the topic uh, here at hand. Um, I am, well, first of all, I'm married. And my wife, Kim, and I have five kids. Most of them are uh, out of college. A couple of them are, or one is still in college in Oregon. And um, then we have at home a 13-year-old daughter. Uh, my work is in ministry. I've been involved in international uh, missions work and ministry for my whole life, my whole career, basically. I, after college, joined the Christian Relief and Development Organization, Food for the Hungry. Uh, if some of you have heard of World Vision or Compassion International, it's a very similar kind of work. And I was involved in training and equipping our cross-cultural missionaries in that uh, organization. Had a chance while I was there to travel around the world, so I've been to many different countries, lived overseas for a number of years uh, in Asia and um, so it's been a great blessing and uh, really just working with the poor I've had a real heart for the poor but my real calling is in the area of ideas and worldview and how do those things connect well uh, as we me and my colleagues at Food for the Hungry we're wanting to really see impoverished communities rise out of poverty and begin to thrive uh, one of the things we began to kind of realize was that at the root of so much brokenness, uh, it's not things that we sometimes think of. It's not lack of money. Uh, it's uh, not lack of help from the outside, although those things can help. Uh, it often is ideas. It's belief systems. And often when people uh, begin to live out and understand the powerful truths of the Bible they begin to rise out of poverty. And so we began to do biblical worldview discipleship for the purpose of seeing poor communities rise out of poverty. And uh, that gave rise to the ministry I'm in right now called the Disciple Nations Alliance. And so we do uh, biblical worldview training and discipleship with churches all over the world, and particularly in very poor communities, to help them rise out of poverty through the power of applied biblical truth. So I am passionate about truth, I'm passionate about the Bible, and, and I really have a passion to help Christians to see the Bible as much more than a, just a, a message of salvation, which it is, thank God, but as a, as a comprehensive way of understanding the world, who we are, how we, re, how we relate to creation, what is creation, all of these things. So because I am interested in worldview and ideas, uh, I became very interested in this subject as well that we're talking about today when I began, like you guys, to see these ideas start to percolate up in the culture. And like many of you, was, I was confused by it. What, 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 is, what are you talking about? Systemic racism, uh, white privilege. It came to me anyways. It got, it got to the point where I had some dear friends in Phoenix, uh, close Christian friends, uh, very high up in influential churches in Phoenix. And I was trying to explore what, what was happening with Black Lives Matter early on back in 2015. And I was, I was kind of coming to the conclusion that I, I certainly gave them the benefit of the doubt. I thought maybe they really did care about black lives. I, said, I do too. I, you know, I, I have a real heart for the black community in the United States and their experience. But then it began to dawn on me, I don't think they really do. I mean, if they did, they'd be concerned about, you know, the huge problem of the broken family, not just in the black community, but across our nation. But they, they actually don't care about that. In fact, they say in their belief statements that they want to deconstruct the family. And I thought that was very <coughs> odd. And they're not concerned about violence in the cities. That's a huge problem for the black community. They're not concerned, unless it's white and black violence, then that's... That's, that, that's where they get interested. And they're not concerned about abortion, which is the number one cause of death in the black community today. In fact, they promoted abortion. So I thought, anyways, I thought, this is strange. Well, if they really care about black lives, they're not doing a very good job of really getting to the bottom 
of what's driving so much of the problems in the black community. Uh, so I began to question it. And as I did, my um, Christian friends in Phoenix began to become alarmed. Scott, you know, you know, maybe you have white privilege. I had never heard that before. <laughs> so uh, I'm like, what, what do you mean? Let's have some discussions. And as I began to have discussions with friends in Phoenix, they turned into kind of evangelistic opportunities. And I hadn't been evangelized for a while. Sometimes Mormons come to the door and, you know, we have talks, you know, or Jehovah's Witnesses. But it was similar. I mean, it was literally similar with my Christian friends. It wasn't a dialogue. It was like, you know, listen to me. Especially if, you know, I have Hispanic friends and, you know, a lot of Hispanics in Phoenix. And they, they, were, they weren't interested in dialogue. They wanted me to sit and listen to them. Which I thought was also very strange. That I hadn't experienced before. I'm very, I love talking, debating, thinking. Let's talk. I want to understand. Oh, yeah, I'd love to listen. But it wasn't that. It was, you listen to me. So I thought, what's going on here with this? Anyways, long story short, it really uh, began to drive me to understand what's going on. And of course, all of this has really erupted now onto the surface, especially since 2020, the riots, uh, the silencing, the, cens- the cen- uh, what do you call it, the uh, cancel culture, censorship. Very alarming, very alarming things. And um, I wanted to... I want to just start with, I, I just was pick, read, I picked up this book and I was reading it on the flight yesterday. Um, Eric Metaxas, are you familiar with Eric Metaxas? So he's got a brand new book, just, I literally, it just was released this week. It's called Letter to the American Church. And what Metaxas is doing in this book is, is he's issuing a warning to us, the American church. And he's doing it by going back to Germany in the 1930s. Uh, he wrote a book on the Life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. That's a very powerful book. And I remember reading that many years ago and, and thinking this is a prophetic message for the church in the United States today. So he's picking that same theme up here. Um, when we think of Germany in the 1930s, this is when Nazism was beginning to kind of percolate up through society. Germany in the 1930s was a, a country that had a deep, deep, rich Christian heritage. It was a deeply Christian country. It was a beautiful country. It still is a beautiful country. Um, And you would think that ideas that gave rise to Nazism and to uh, the final solution, you just just can't imagine that it could come from a place like Germany. Uh, We can't. Um, And yet it did. It started to slowly trickle up and percolate up through the society. And Metaxas is interested in the church in Germany in the 1930s because how did they respond? You know, in hindsight, it's easy for us today because we see what happened in Germany. It's easy to say, oh, they, they didn't do enough. You know, they should have been more aware of what was going on and taken a stand. Uh, but we have to go back before and put ourselves into the shoes of German Christians in the 1930s before anyone ever saw a swastika or associated with something demonic. They didn't know any of that in the future. Uh, He said this, Metaxas did. I just want to read a little bit about this for you here. He said, at the time, this was 1935, uh, the Nazi party had just come on the scenes. Uh, some of their ideas were, as I say, beginning to percolate up through society. Bonhoeffer could see. He was prophetic. He could see where these ideas were going to go because he knew where they, he knew where they were rooted. They were rooted in kind of a, a tribal, paganistic atheism. And he knew the danger of those ideas, the power of those ideas. Uh, so he was a prophetic voice. And so he and his friends uh, wrote a statement called the Brahma Declaration to the church and encouraged people in the church to sign it. Uh, the people that did sign it became the confessing church in Germany. Uh, uh, Metaxas says at the time there were about 18,000 churches in Germany, 18,000 pastors. How many do you think signed? the Brahman Declaration in, the, in 1935. Only three. 
3,000 pastors signed up. Uh, another 3,000 were fully supportive of the Nazi political party. Again, we don't want to be too harsh on them, because they, we see back. They didn't see what was coming up. They probably should have seen more. But they were supportive at that time. German churches were very supportive of the government. Uh, there's a close relationship in Germany between the church and the government. So it wasn't uncommon to, you know, to show support for the government. So they put Nazi swastikas on their pulpits. 3,000 churches hit in Germany. Uh, so three signed the Brahman, De Barman De Brahman, Barman Declaration. Three were fully supportive of the Nazis. Metaxas is interested in the remainder, 12,000. And this is the title of his chapter, 12,000 pastors. What about the 12 that were somewhere in the middle? Let me read what he says here. So it was very profound. 12,000 weren't willing to take a stand one way or the other. The 12,000 preferred to remain neutral as if this were possible. But can we doubt that it is precisely because of the 12,000 who didn't strongly stand with the confessing church that the 3,000 who did had a much harder time? If another 3,000 or 6,000 Protestant pastors had stood with the confessing church during this time, the Nazis could never have been able to succeed. It's really sobering, isn't it? Yeah. Which is an extraordinary and a heartbreaking thing to consider. But the church had greater cultural power. Uh, but the church had greater cultural power in Germany, so when it balked and chose not to use its voice and its cultural power, it doomed the entirety of the German church, which in turn doomed the, the whole nation. Somebody said to me once, as goes the church, so goes the nation. I think there's a lot of truth to that. It's not because we're such great people. We have a great God. But he's entrusted us. We're stewards of his word. We're custodians of his word, of his worldview. And if we're not out there speaking it into society, nobody is. And if we kind of are afraid or, you know, confused and we don't speak, we could doom the nation. Listen to, what, listen to what he says here. You might think this is a little radical, but I think he's got a point. The blood of the scores of millions who died in the Second World War and the blood of the millions murdered in that abomination that we call the Holocaust is on the hands of those 12,000. So I, I just start with this because I think sometimes people are feeling like, well, should I even be interested in this? What, you know, there's a lot of what's going on. I'm confused. I think the Germans in 1930, the church was confused because Nazism wasn't indigenous, so to speak, in some ways. It seemed foreign, it seemed strange. We are confused. Uh, you know, but I, I want you guys to, to I, I feel like these ideas that are percolating up in our culture right now, uh, I think it would be wrong to think they couldn't have the same effect in the United States. I think we'd be naive to think that. And here's why. Both ideas are rooted in atheism. Both ideas are about power, and I'll explain that. Power, uh, and they both subscribe to kind of a, um, the ends justify the means type of approach. And whenever you have those ideas, they also divide good and evil between groups. Nazism divided good and evil between groups. Uh, the problem with the world, the evil in the world, is caused by the Jews. These new ideas that are trickling up here in the United States do, do exactly the same thing. The evil in the world isn't inside the human heart. They don't believe in the fall in these Christian doctrines. The evil in the world is out there, and it's with other groups. Whenever Those are really dangerous ideas, people. And if those ideas get a deep foothold into society, we're asking for serious trouble. So, anyways, I think it's, it's an important time, and I'm really glad you guys are here, because I think, as Pastor Scott was saying, we need to understand these ideas as best we can. We need to take a stand. Uh, we don't want to be 
We don't want to, we have the advantage of looking back at the German church, right? They didn't have that advantage. But we do. And this wasn't that long ago. So, okay, let's get into it a little bit. I'm going to talk a little bit about my, kind of my task here. And Scott, how, what, what time do I need to be finished with this session? Okay, I'm going to have to go kind of quickly then. But I've got two tasks I'd like to do. I'd like to kind of explain a little bit of the history. Uh, what, first of all, I thought you did a great job, Pastor Scott, of explaining kind of what this is. I'll add my two cents to kind of what is this thing. And then the history. What, what's the history of these ideas? Where did it come from? Um, and then I want to just end by kind of quickly doing a uh, kind of a look at it in terms of a worldview by comparing and contrasting it to the biblical worldview. So uh, we'll see if we can get through all that in time here. You know, if I had to describe this system of thought, this ideology in kind of one or or two sentences, it would be something like this. I just want to kind of try to boil it down to its essence. Social justice or wokeism or critical theory has a number of different names. uh, anyways, in, this is my own words, but it's the tearing down of traditional structures and systems that are deemed to be oppressive and the redistribution of power and resources from oppressors to victims in the pursuit of an equality of outcome. So several ideas here, but I think this kind of gets to the nub of what this is that we're seeing kind of percolate up in our society right now. So the tearing down of traditional systems and structures, what do we mean by that? Uh, Scott, Pastor Scott mentioned several of these. Uh, maybe not what we think of as oppressive systems, but this is what the ideology considers to be oppressive systems and structures. The Western prescribed nuclear family is oppressive, needs to be torn down. It's oppressive to women. It's oppressive to LGBTQ people. It needs to be torn down. Male headship in the home, the patriarchy, it's oppressive. Biblical teachings on sex, gender, marriage, oppressive, needs to be uprooted and torn down. Toxic masculinity, whiteness. And by whiteness or white supremacy, it doesn't mean maybe what we think. You know, it doesn't really have to do with white skin so much even. Um, a few, a couple years ago, the Smithsonian Museum of African American History in Washington, D.C., published an infographic. Did you guys see that? It described whiteness or the characteristics of whiteness. And it had to do with things like uh, trusting in the authority of the Bible, uh, punctuality, reason, kind of a belief in the scientific method. I didn't know those things were associated with white people I thought, until I read that. But that's, that's all oppressive, okay? That's whiteness. That's white supremacy. It's oppressive. It needs to come down. Uh, free independent nations, the U.S. Constitution, the whole system of government in the United States is oppressive. It was set up. These systems were set up by slaveholders and racists uh, who established the systems to maintain their, their power over others. So these are the oppressive systems that have to come down. Uh, What's happened with these ideas is that some people use this phrase institutional capture. It used to be that this was something that was kind of just in the universities. And when I was in uh, the university in the 1980s in Oregon, at a very liberal, uh, Oregon is kind of famous for its liberal, liberal arts (laughs) colleges, and I went to one of those and I, was, I got a heavy dose, dose of Marxist thinking at that time in the 80s. And uh, in fact, you know, it, it affected me. It took me quite a while to kind of get my own thoughts straightened out. I was a fairly young Christian at the time coming out of college. But um, it used to be that it was only in places like Willamette University, my alma mater, or Columbia University, or the University of California system. Uh, what's happened now is that it's come out of the universities Uh, and it's really captured institutions across our society. So it's deeply embedded um, in our court systems, in our government, our schools, big business, you name it. And this is what's alarming, um, is that we've seen that this thing has really been able to take a deep root across kind of all of these institutions of society. Let me talk a little bit about the history 
I want to talk about these ideas that fed into wokeism. Wokeism kind of, I would say, you can trace it back to Europe in the uh, 1850s, some of these key ideas. There was an intellectual milieu at that time, powerful ideas, powerful thinkers, people like Nietzsche, Freud, Darwin. Uh, this is Michel Foucault, if you're not familiar with that last person. They were all atheists, okay? There was a stream of thought coming out of the Enlightenment that uh, uh, there were really two streams. I mean, Western culture kind of subdivided at that point. One stream continued to affirm the Judeo-Christian belief system that was kind of at the root of Western culture. But there was another stream that just denied it, that rejected it. Um, It was a kind of, I call it the science stream. It's like, it was this idea that now through science and reason, um, we can know it all. We don't need to refer back to this God who we kind of used to believe in the dark ages. We can know it all through science, through reason, etc. And so that kind of fed into this whole school of thought in in the early to mid-1800s that was really atheistic. Uh, Nietzsche is famous for the idea that God is dead. We killed him. No God, no moral absolutes, no objective truth. In a world with no God, no moral absolutes, no objective truth. All that's left, according to Nietzsche, is power and the will to power. We make this world what we will. Okay? Uh, that idea also was reflected in Darwin himself, right? There is no God. We can explain human life through the theory of evolution. We're highly evolved animals. So we have no inherent rights, we have no inherent value or dignity. The only law is the survival of the fittest. Might makes right. Everything is reduced to power. Okay, you can see it there as well. Jacques Derrida, the famous postmodern theorist, said, because there is no God, the Bible doesn't have authority, right? That's an old fairy tale book. Uh, The Bible was how we got definitions and understood words, words like justice and marriage and freedom in the West for millennia. That all got thrown away. Now words are being redefined, and words are simply uh, structures that we can use to amass power, to amass control over other people. You can see this whole obsession with power, and that fits right into this current kind of ideology of wokeism as well. It's all about power. Everything can be explained through power dynamics. Every human action at the end of the day is all about power. Now, you might think, as I did when I first heard that, that's crazy. Honestly, like, I just try to apply it to my relationship with my wife. If it was all about power, (laughs) our marriage would dissolve, like, very quickly, right? Because I'd always be wondering, now, you're doing that thing that's nice, but behind that, you're just trying to kind of manipulate me and control me. And she's doing the same thing. And that's the mindset of the critical theorist, right? Nothing is as it seems. It might seem nice and benign on the surface, but underneath, it's only about power and control. And power is viewed negatively, right? Power is, is for one thing and one thing only, to, to benefit me and exploit you for my benefit. It's all negative. Now, think about just, just a quick comparison with the biblical worldview. Is the biblical worldview anti-power? I should stand here in front of the camera. <laughs> Is the biblical worldview anti-power? I ask you again. No, it's not. Jesus said uh, after he rose from the tomb and he appeared to his disciples before he gave the great commission. Do you remember what he said? All authority in heaven and earth has been given me. All power. I have all power. I have all authority. So Bible's not anti-power. It's not anti-authority. But it understands power in a very positive way, I would say, right? Those who have power are given power in order to serve, right? Those without. That idea is completely foreign to critical theory. It's all negative. Power is used for one thing and one thing only, to dominate, to control, to benefit me at the expense of you. Uh, Let me talk a little bit about Michel Foucault, uh, because he's really key in this as well. He's a key postmodern theorist from France. 
He was also interested in power and who's in charge and how are they structuring society to maintain their dominance and their power. He spoke about this concept of normalizing power and what he meant by that was that seemingly normal ways of doing things, normal systems, normal structures like the family, like the US Constitution, like our system of law, these things that we kind of take for granted, they're actually structured in such a way that underneath them, some people benefit and others do not. In other words, what looks normal are that uh, behind what looks normal are powerful people who've structured these things to maintain their power or their advantage. So we need to be suspicious of what seems normal, right? Critical. Okay, it's not what it seems. It might seem benign, uh, but it's actually underneath of that there's this system of control. And we need to be suspicious, critical. We need to look below the surface to see what's going on behind these benign structures. So you can see those ideas all the way back have come right into the present as well from these men. I want to talk about Karl Marx because I think more than anyone, Marx himself really is the kind of the, 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 font, the font head of so much of critical theory. Uh, I'll just quickly go through some of this because I'm, I'm assuming you're familiar with Karl Marx. Uh, he was a strong atheist. He believed that Christianity and all religion was a wish-fulfilling fantasy. I wish there was life after death. I wish my life had meaning. I wish there was universal justice or there was somebody who would save me. So we invent a God so that uh, we can have these wishes fulfilled. He also believed that all that exists is power and that everything can be explained in terms of power dynamics. He divided reality into two exclusive categories, exclusive. You're either an oppressor or you're oppressed. There's nothing that fits outside those categories. There's no neutrality. You're either one or the other. Uh, and that created a kind of a system of morality that, uh, that kind of grew up around Marxism. If you were an oppressor, you were evil. If you were a victim of oppression, you were innocent. Okay, Oppressors deserve punishment. Victims deserve benefits. Marx was a strict materialist. Everything was shaped by the quest for material wealth and property. For him, economics drove everything, and the disparity in wealth between those who had and those who had not was really the source of all that was wrong in the world. That bothered him, and he felt like if we could move beyond that, the world could be a much better place. Uh, so basically, his theory boiled down to dethrone God and destroy capitalism, because for him, capitalism was that system of private property and ownership that created the wealth disparities that was at the root of all evil. Um, here's a quick little diagram of what Marxism, I call it Marxism 1.0, looks like. You have these categories at the top of good and evil, uh, but good is defined by the victims, those who are oppressed. They're morally innocent. And in Marx's scheme, that was the workers of the world, right? The working class. On the other side, you had evil, and that was subdivided between the evil system uh, that Foucault was talking about, these systems and structures, and in Marx's case, that was capitalism, and the evil people that were benefiting from those systems. In this case, it was the property owners, the capitalists. I think we got to give Marx just a little bit of uh, the benefit of the doubt in some ways. He was writing in the 1850s. How many of you guys have read you know, Dickens' The Christmas Carol and some of his other books, right? So it gives you a picture of what capitalism looked like in those days, right? There weren't child labor laws. There weren't unions. There was a lot of oppression of workers, a lot of exploitation. Um, so uh, he was seeing that, and he was bothered by it. What did it look like when we put this into practice? Okay, we have the advantage of taking these ideas out of the library in London where Marx was writing these things and putting them into practice over the 20th century. First in Russia, later in China, then Vietnam, Korea, Venezuela, and many nations around the world. Well, we know what happened. 
During the Russian Revolution, if you were a member of the property-owning class, you were defined as guilty because you were part of that group. Okay? It doesn't matter if you were a nice person or generous or did good things to help the poor. None of that mattered. What you did individually didn't matter. All that mattered is the group that you were a part of, in this case, the property-owning group. If you were, you were guilty. You were convicted, sentenced to the gulag, uh, and often you were killed. The only thing that mattered in determining your innocence or your guilt was your group affiliation. Again, you see that today, right? Uh, Group is what matters, not what you do, not what you think, who you are based on your group, groups based on skin color or gender identity, etc. That's what's going to determine innocence or guilt. Well, what's the bitter fruit of all of these ideas when they got put into practice? Uh, Horrific, 94 million deaths, prison states, gulags, uh, tyranny. Um, Utopian vision that Marx had in mind was never realized. Uh, The way that it worked out in the real world was instead of this kind of equality of outcome, uh, George Orwell in his famous book Animal Farm saw this very clearly. The pigs on the farm, right? All the animals are equal, but some are more equal than others, right? (laughs) And the pigs are going to figure out a way of amassing power and wealth for themselves, and that's the way it always works out in this kind of tyrannical worldview. This is one of the reasons you see how deadly this worldview is. And this is not old history. This is really recent history. It's actually going on right now still in China and in other places around the world. This is why I'm, I think we have to take these ideas here in the United States very seriously. They're atheistic. There's no place in this worldview for Christian virtues like love, forgiveness, mercy. They don't play a role at all. In fact, they're looked down upon as weak. Uh, that was kind of the, the, the Nietzsche, Nietzschean idea that this Christian morality is weak. So there's no place for those ideas in this system of thought. And it's already led to millions of deaths around the world. I think sometimes, and I'm an American, I think we think it could not happen here. Just couldn't. But I, I think we're wrong. I think it could if these ideas, they're powerful. I, I always tell people, never underestimate the power of ideas. Never underestimate the power of ideas. We live out of our belief systems. We build communities out of the worldviews that we possess. So when new worldviews come on the scene, always be careful. Well, in 1989, the Berlin Wall fell. You guys remember that? I was living in Japan at the time. I was so thrilled. I thought... Uh, Oh, and also in that same year, right around that time, there was that huge uh, Tiananmen Square uprising in China. Remember that? And I thought that China was going to move from communism to democracy. Uh, There was all this hope that Marxism had failed, right? And Marxist theory was going to be thrown onto the dustbin of history. And I believe that. I thought, we're done with this horrible idea, finally. Finally. and I, in my own mind, throughout much of the 2000s, I didn't give Marx, uh, Marxism much thought. I actually kind of forgot about it. Like if you ask me, what is Marxism? I'd have to go back and refer back to my old books because I just kind of didn't think much about it. I thought we're beyond that. Boy, was I wrong. Like I, honestly, just in the last few years, I have come to see that I was so wrong. Marxism did not die. In fact, it uh, incubated right here in this country in our universities. It incubated throughout the 2000s and into the present, and now it's exploded forth in a more virulent form than maybe has ever existed on Earth, in our own country. So uh, it didn't go away. What happened? Let me trace kind of this current Marxism that we now are dealing with because it's not quite the same as this Marxism, what I call Marxism 1.0. I'm going to call it Marxism 2.0. It's a little bit different. The pioneer of this new kind of reconfigured Marxism was an Italian Marxist named Antonio Gramsci. A couple of things about him. Uh, He uh, realized that Marxism 1.0 
wasn't going to succeed in the United States. It wasn't going to succeed in the West because it had a strict economic focus. And the problem there was that people in the United States came from all over the world for economic opportunity, right, for the American dream so that they could, they could be free to use their labor and their creativity to create new things. And many of them did. And people began to rise out of poverty. You, could, you, know, you weren't locked into a class. You could move from lower to middle to upper class in this country fairly quickly. And so this Marxist idea just wasn't appealing to the workers of the United States in the way that it was to the workers of Russia or to China. Uh, and Gramsci saw that. He saw this economic analysis isn't going to, it's not going to be successful. The other thing he saw was that the United States is a deeply Christian country, and uh, Christianity gives people hope for a future, right? Um, it actually provides the underpinnings for their freedom. So we've got to undermine Christianity. So we've got to get down to the level of culture, in other words. He believed that we're never going to defeat the West with guns, bullets, and open war. Rather, we need to work through a strategy of what he called infiltration. We need to work slowly and steadily over time to infiltrate the culture. This is why it's sometimes called cultural Marxism. And that's, you know, sometimes woke people will say, oh, you know, that's, you know, that's, you're just using scare language. No, that's literally what this, the founders of this movement called it uh, back in the 1950s, cultural Marxism. In other words, we've got to infiltrate the culture, the systems of culture, education, business, entertainment, government, even the church. We have to weaken Christianity. We have to weaken the Christian sexual ethic. We have to weaken the family. We have to demoralize the West. This was all Gramsci. Uh, he also said, you know, that in order for Marxist revolution to succeed, you've got to divide a society. There, you've got to tear it down first, then you can rebuild. And the way you tear down society is by exacerbating the division between the worker and the, between the poor and the wealthy. But again, that wasn't working in the United States, and so he was thinking, and others like him were thinking, what other divides could we exploit? And that's how they came to uh, the divide between whites and blacks, even women and men, but, but particularly whites and blacks. I say that because that really was a, a terrific strategy for the United States because of our history with slavery and Jim Crow. Uh, it could be exploited. It, divisions could be sown and exacerbated in order to get those communities fighting with each other, hating each other, and then we could bring in the, the Marxist revolution. And I, I just think that's so key because when you look at a group like Black Lives Matter, right, it sounds good. We all agree, Black Lives Matter. But when you listen to the three founders, they're not ashamed to say, these young ladies who founded that organization, that they're trained in Marxism. And so we just have to take that at face value. Then you're, that means you're not really interested in black people. What you're interested in is using black people to foment a racial divide, a racial tension. Uh, and that's exactly what is going on. It's all about exacerbating racial tension. This is not, as Pastor Scott said, this is not the next civil rights movement a la Martin Luther King Jr. He, that was a healing movement. Uh, that was a movement that brought people together. This one is all about dividing people. And, and you see it. This is why race relations have strangely gotten worse since President Obama was in office. I, I, I remember feeling like I didn't vote for him just because of my politics, but I was excited when he became president because I thought, finally, you know, we've got a black president. We can put, you know, we've truly reached this important milestone now we can really be unified as a country. And since that time, race relations, and you can look at all sorts of stats, have gotten worse and worse and worse. They're at their worst point in a long time. And why? Because it's not actually about racial unity. It's not actually about helping the black community. It's about dividing blacks and whites to weaken society to bring in Marxist revolution. Founders of Black Lives Matter would tell you that. That, that goes back to Gramsci. Well, these uh, ideas of Gramsci were picked up and run with by a, a group of German theorists in the 1950s. 
they called themselves the Frankfurt School. It originally was called the Frankfurt School for Applied Marxism. They were Jews. They were interested in rebooting Marxism because they saw that it was failing in the West and that it was also leading to a lot of bloodshed. And so they wanted to kind of reconfigure it. They were incredibly successful. They fled Germany because many of them were Jews, although they were non-practicing Jews. They were atheists, but their bloodline was Jewish. So they fled Germany during the Nazi regime to the United States, and they began to put their theories into practice at Columbia University in New York, first of all, and then many of them moved to California, to Southern California, and uh, began to kind of be at the fountainhead of a lot that was happening in California in the 1960s with the beginnings of the sexual revolution. Herbert Marcuse was the father of the sexual revolution. What does Marxism 2.0 look like? It looks a lot like Marxism 1.0, but expanded, okay? You still see at the top the, uh, the kind of the original uh, good and evil categories, oppressed victims, oppre- oppressive systems, oppressors. But what's changed is that the number of groups has grown. Now it's not just a divide between class, but significantly it's a divide in terms of race, okay? The oppressed victims are ethnic minorities, people of color, as they're often called, black people particularly. Uh, The evil structure is whiteness or white supremacy, and the uh, people that benefit from that that are evil, uh, or guilty anyways, are whites. Uh, The other divide, sex, male-female. The structure there is the patriarchy. This is kind of this male-dominated power structure. Males are the, uh, are the oppressors. And then the last one there is, um, and again, there's more, more to it, as Pastor Scott was saying, but uh, this gender identity, okay? So the structure that's evil there is the old Judeo-Christian morality, Judeo-Christian understanding of marriage, of sex. It's got to be between a man and a woman. It's got to be for life. There is such a thing as male-female, okay? <laughs> All of that is oppressive, so that's, that's the oppressive structure. The people that benefit from that oppressive structure are Christians who uphold that structure. But the people who are oppressed by it are gays, lesbians, transgender, queer, etc. So you can see, that's why I think Marx is such a key figure in this, because it really, what uh, critical theory does or cultural Marxism does even though it borrows a lot of these ideas from postmodernism in terms of its obsession with power and relativism, it really is just a reboot of Marxism. And I know when I first started seeing this, and I was asking my Christian friends about it, they, I said, I think this is just Marxism kind of warmed over. They were like, oh no, Scott, that's horrible. How, how could you call me a Marxist, right? Nobody wants to be called a Marxism because it's associated with all sorts of deaths and tragedy. And I'm like, listen, I'm not calling anyone a bad name. I'm just trying to understand these ideas. It seems like it's the same set of ideas that Marx was promoting, but in a different kind of way. And I stand by that. Now, this concept of intersectionality, let me just touch on it briefly again. I know Pastor Scott talked about it, but uh, because we're dealing now with multiple oppressed categories in this new version Intersectionality is just the idea that uh, if you belong to more than one of those oppressed categories, uh, your level of oppression increases. And because, uh, as I said, oppressed oppressed people, victims of oppression are innocent, your level of virtue actually goes up, okay? So your level of goodness in this kind of worldview increases with the more oppression that you face. Alan Jacobs, um, uh, who used to be at Wheaton, said, intersectionality occurs when someone belongs to more than one oppressed or marginalized group. A black female lesbian, for instance, experiences such oppression or marginalization in a particularly intensified way thanks to the intersection of these social forces. Why does all this matter? Well... Because victimhood in this worldview becomes a virtue, and the more intersectional oppression that you can claim, the greater your virtue. 
Jamie Metzger, I like what she said here. Victimhood is the highest virtue. Victims are members of oppressed identity groups and are elevated to a kind of sainthood. And this is exactly what intersectionality teaches, complete with a hierarchy of victimhood for comparing everyone's relative righteousness. I want you to, again, just think about this in contrast to the biblical worldview, which also is very focused on righteousness, goodness, virtue. But it comes in a very different way, okay? (laughs) This worldview is also interested in virtue, but you get it in a very different way. You get it by being a victim. And in this worldview, victimhood accrues all sorts of benefits, which is why people strangely now want to be a victim, okay? Uh, This is behind so many of these race uh, crime hoaxes that we see all the time, right? There's benefits that come with being able to claim victim status. It took me a while to get my head around this because I still grew up in an America where being a victim wasn't seen as a good thing, right? You know, even if you were, right, um, literally a, a, a victim of something, sexual assault or some hardship in your life, you didn't want that to define you. You wanted to say, I'm not going to allow that to define me. I'm defined by these other things. I can overcome that. But in this worldview, that changed, and you want to hold tightly to that victim status. Why? Here's some of the benefits that accrue to victims. Number one, power and authority. In other words, you can say that my lived experience of being a victim has to be believed without question. There is no truth, right? There's no objective truth. But we do defer to victims in this worldview, Okay, And that's why when I saw this, when I remember I was talking to you about how I was evangelized by the young Hispanic lady, Christian lady, and she didn't want to talk. She didn't want to have a dialogue. She wanted me to sit down and listen. Uh, This was what was going on, and I didn't know it at the time. But uh, she, because of her brown skin, was a part of a victim group, and I, because of my white skin, was part of an oppressive group. And in that kind of a dynamic... Uh, we're not here to discuss or dialogue and try to come to some understanding. You sit and listen to me. I'll tell you the way things are. Uh, That's this worldview. Uh, Righteousness, victimhood is the highest virtue. And as I said kind of earlier, special knowledge and insight. Victims have knowledge that oppressors don't have because of their experience of oppression. This is kind of the standpoint epistemology idea that... uh, that Pastor Scott was talking about. Oh my gosh, I'm running out of time. I'll skip ahead just a little bit here. Some of the pivotal figures that were transitioning between the Frankfurt School and today would be people like Saul Alinsky, the author of Rules for Radicals, Derek Bell at Harvard University, the founder of Critical Race Theory, and Eric Mann. Um, Both Eric Mann and Saul Alinsky are socialist activists Eric Mann's still alive, and he is the trainer of the three founders of Black Lives Matter. They said, you know, these three young black ladies said we're trained Marxists. They were trained by a white guy. How many of you knew that? This is actually not an indigenous black ideology. This comes from white people, (laughs) and it's using black people. I just think it's important to know that. You guys might be more familiar with these people, some of the popularizers today. Uh, Robin DiAngelo, uh, she's the author of this really powerful book, uh, White Fragility. She's a top DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion trainer. These are the three founders of Black Lives Matter. One of them is from Phoenix, Arizona, I'm proud to say, and uh, graduate of Arizona State University. This is Ibram X. Kendi, um, who has also become really a key spokesperson for the, uh, for the ideology today. So these popularizers are more familiar. But you see, they're sitting upon ideas that go all the way back, okay, into the early 1800s, okay. They're just current kind of faces, current popularizers for much older ideas. These ideas have spread through culture. Ideas always spread through culture. They often start with intellectuals, people like Darwin, Freud, Nietzsche, But then they're picked up by artists, and those artists begin to to move them into the culture through film, art, book, literature. 
then they're picked up by professionals and popularizers in the law, politics, education. They become part of the law. They change the laws. They change the curriculum in schools. So they become institutionalized. That's where we're at today. These ideas have now become institutionalized. And because of that, they are being, uh, we're all being affected by them, right? We're all part of the schools that are using the curriculum. We're all under the laws and the legal systems. We're all beginning to be affected by these ideas. They've really worked their, their way out into society. Just in the last couple of minutes, I just want to touch on a few of the key ideas behind this ideology as a worldview. Uh, Neil Shenvey, who's helped me a lot, and I recommend his writing and his blogs and whatnot to you, he said this, the biggest conflict between Christianity and a conception of social justice rooted in critical theory is how they both function as worldviews that frame all of reality. Worldviews, and we all have them, they answer big questions. What's real? Who am I? What's ultimately real? Who am I? What's wrong with the world? I want to just quickly go through how critical theory answers some of the big questions and then compare and contrast with what the Bible says as a response. What's ultimately real? Ideological social justice says that the human mind defines what is real. Let me explain that a little bit. The Bible says, no, the human mind doesn't define reality. God does, because Genesis 1.1 says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's the, the, the substructure of all reality. Let's get back to this idea that the human mind defines what's real. Nancy Pierce, he says that because of its postmodern influence, uh, the mind the human mind defines reality. Instead of deifying matter, postmodernism deifies the mind. The mind itself is granted godlike creative power. I just want to read one quote from George Orwell's famous book, 1984. Orwell captured this idea perfectly in this book, in this one section. I just want to read this to you. How many of you read 1984? It's a really important book to read today. Um, you know, the protagonist is a guy named Winston, and he's functioning in a society where it's a, it's a tyranny, and there's this kind of powerful, dominant narrative, but he begins to question that narrative. He's like, I don't know if what I'm hearing is true. And so he becomes a threat to the regime because he's questioning it, and they throw him into prison, and now he's going to be tortured. And that's where we're at today here in this, in this section He's, uh, he's being interrogated, he's being tortured, and this is the interrogator speaking to him. He says, I tell you, Winston, reality is not external. It's not out there with a God or the Bible or something like that. It's not even out there in the physical world uh, in terms of science and biology and things. It's not out there. Reality exists in the human mind and nowhere else, not in the individual mind, which can make mistakes and in any case soon perishes, only in the mind of the party, which is collective and immortal. Whatever the party holds to be true is truth. It's impossible to see reality except by looking through the eyes of the party. That is a fact you've got to relearn Winston. That's exactly what's going on today. Reality isn't out there. It's in the mind. You, you see this particularly with the transgender movement, I think perfectly in some ways. It's the perfect kind of distillation of this idea. So God doesn't define who I am right? Uh, and biology doesn't even define who I am. My physical body doesn't define that, right? That would have been modernism. Modernism would have deferred to science. Chromosomes, you know, body parts, that kind of defines whether I'm male or female. No. Who defines reality? I do. Uh, what I believe is real. And you have to affirm that, okay? You have to affirm that. What Orwell did is he said, that's not going to work. Not everyone can define reality for themselves, right? Ultimately, someone's going to come in and say, because that's just going to create chaos. Somebody's going to come in, take power, and define reality for everyone else. Um, who are we? What does it mean to be a human being? 
uh, critical theories grew out of, significantly grew out of sociology. And so sociological kind of thinking plays a big role in it. Uh, Darwin would have said we're, we're animals, right? We're kind of biologically determined creatures, right? We're a product of our genes. Critical theories, because of their, socialist, their sociological influence, says, no, we're not products of our genes. We're products of our groups, our, our, our social groups. We're creatures who, whose identity is wholly socially determined. We're products of our race, our sex, our gender identity. The groups that we belong to define us. Again, look at what the Bible says and how different that is from what the Bible teaches. And just quickly, the Bible also affirms groups, right? Okay. The Bible says groups are important. They shape us, our families, our churches, our ethnicities. Those are important. So the Bible is going to affirm that. But the Bible is also going to affirm the individual, right? The individual matters. God created us uniquely as individuals with names, with unique gifts and talents, And he uses us as individuals. You know, God called Abraham, right? One man and his family, and he used them. And he's going to use us. So individual, the Bible balances the uh, value of the individual and the importance of groups. Uh, This this new worldview, this critical theory worldview, denies the individual. The individual doesn't matter. The group is everything. So you see this, for example, in white privilege, this concept of white privilege. You have it. Right, uh, just based on one thing and one thing only, you color your skin. It doesn't matter if you're, like you could be the poorest, most underprivileged white person that exists. That could have been your personal experience, but it doesn't matter. Right? I don't want to hear about that personal experience. One thing and one thing only is going to define you, and that's the color of your skin or your gender identity or whatever it is. That's a really dehumanizing idea. It's a really destructive idea. Nancy Piercy, individuals are little more than mouthpieces. It reduces us to mouthpieces of our communities based on race, class, gender identity, etc. You know, uh, Pastor Jesse, I saw this in the black community because I was debating with people early on in my understanding of critical theory, and I was, and they were saying all black people are, are oppressed, victims. And I said, you know, I got a lot of black friends that wouldn't see themselves in that way, and I was pointing out people that did that kind of talked differently, didn't kind of askew to that narrative. And uh, that made them really upset. It was like, no, as a black person, you've got to think in a certain way, just in the same way that if I'm a white person, I have to think in a certain way and behave a certain way. And I'm like, well, who told you that? <laughs> so that's it, the worldview. Jordan Peterson um, said that ideological social justice denies the individual, denies the individual. It claims that all you are is just an avatar of your group, just a mouthpiece. So this is a dangerous, dangerous idea. Uh, Okay, I'm out of time, but I just need to kind of, there's a couple more important things I got to get to. What is our fundamental problem? What's wrong with the world? Social justice uh, critical theory says this, that there's one group that's amassed power. That would be white people, heteronormative males. And they've established power structures to oppress all of these different groups. And so they're the problem. Okay? Uh, evil in the world exists because of them. Okay? Very different from what the Bible says. The Bible says uh, the, ex- the problems in the world, the evil in the world doesn't exist out there, right? It exists in here, right? It starts in our hearts, right? And until you get to that root, you're never going to see any kind of positive societal change. Any group that says the problems are out there with another group become, quickly become violent because we need to destroy that other group, the Jews or whoever it is, the Tutsis, They've got to be eliminated. Now, you think, oh, this couldn't happen again in the United States, right? I sometimes feel like, no, it couldn't either. I still can't quite imagine it. But again, the power of these ideas and the history of these ideas have to be taken seriously. Ta-Nehisi Coates said, whiteness is an existential danger to the world. Whites have brought humanity to the edge of oblivion. 
If you replace the word white with Jew, it would be perfectly perfect. It would be a perfect fit on the lips of any Nazi during World War II. Perfect. So we can't. We got to take this seriously. People are talking in the same way today, but about a different kind of group. And I know I'm not supposed to say this because I'm white, but forget that. Just forget that. Just look at the idea and what people are saying. These are dangerous ideas. What's the solution to the evil in the world? Revolution. Okay, the victims have to unite, unmask, and deconstruct and overthrow these systems. What's the solution for the Bible? The cross. On the cross, God incarnate bore the punishment we deserve to show us a mercy we could never deserve. And again, the revolution that I'm talking about is this revolution. Saul Alinsky put it this way. It's one that doesn't flaunt radicalism. These revolutionaries cut their hair, put on suits, and they infiltrate the systems from within. And that's what's happened. Guys, I'm sorry I put too much into this session, but I think you get an idea of how this functions as a worldview and how it's so different from what the Bible teaches, what the biblical worldview teaches.